This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Susan Stokes Chapman about Pandora. It's probably a fair bet that our listeners have at least heard of Pandora's box. Sealed by the god Zeus, it was a gift to the first woman created by the gods of Olympus, with the commandment that she never open it. But as every novel reader and movie lover knows, if the characters who received such orders actually obeyed them, there would be no story. Sure enough, one day Pandora's curiosity got the better of her, and she lifted the lid of the box, releasing into the world all the evils that beset humanity to this day. The only thing left in the box was hope, which some have seen as the cruelest aspect of this dire fate. Susan Stokes Chapman takes this ancient story and builds it into a late 18th century setting. She begins with the discovery of a shipwrecked treasure. Samson, the Silly Isles, December 1798. He had not allowed for the weight. The cold he anticipated, the water's sluggish buoyancy, this too he considered. The darkness? The lantern does well enough, and his memory allows for shortfalls in sight. But the weight? This is something else altogether. The lantern itself is manageable. It is bound to his wrist with thick twine, affording movement in both hands, but it pulls down uncomfortably on his arm and the salt water stings where the twine has already rubbed the skin. The ropes looped under each armpit, one for the salvage, one to raise him again, are cumbersome, but they help balance his body as he descends. The sinking weights, too, though bulky, can be endured. The problem is the harness, strong tin plate domed and airy around his head. Further down, it constricts his torso like an unforgiving corset. On deck, it did not feel so heavy. Below the surface, however, the restrictive leather suit, the iron hoop skeleton that pinches meanly, together with the pressure of water and the winter currents, he will demand more money once the job is done. And now, please join me in welcoming Susan Stokes Chapman. Susan, thank you for agreeing to chat with me today. Hello, Carolyn. Thank you so much for having me. Pandora is your debut novel. Could you tell us a bit about yourself, what you did before, and how you came to write fiction? 
Sure. So I grew up in the Georgian city of Lichfield in uh, Staffordshire, UK. Uh, I basically always had kind of a bit of a booky sort of attitude. So after school, I then went on to study English and education at Aberystwyth University, which is in Wales. I then went on to study an MA in creative writing, which I think is where I specifically made the decision to pursue my dream of writing historical fiction in the Georgian period specifically. But uh, as with most people, uh, once you left university, you had to go and get, go and get a job. So I basically worked in, the, in higher education, uh, both in the public and the private sector. So I worked a lot with students, um, kind of advising them in administration uh, capacity as well. I later went back to Aberystwyth University to work in their student liaison department and that involved um, visiting schools and colleges to talk about university and everything that's involved but my love was always English literature as I said and I was writing novels pretty much the whole time I was in those jobs until finally I got the um, publication deal in the UK for Pandora and it's enabled me luckily to write full-time now uh, and I live in North West Wales so in the Snowdonia National Park and uh, yeah there we are that's a very kind of encapsulated snapshot for you. Well congratulations on getting that project it would be lovely to write full-time. <laughs> what drew you to the uh, story of Pandora's box specifically what made you want to use that story as the basis of a novel? Well, I, I think since uh, 1995 and having watched the BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, that was when I was first made aware, I think, of the Georgian period. Back then I was either nine or ten, I think, and I was watching it through very rose-tinted glasses, so to speak. So I wasn't fully aware of um, the nitty-gritty, kind of dirty underbelly of, of Georgian life. But it did encourage me to read and research the era quite a bit. So I always knew as a writer I was going to write Georgian set fiction. And to answer more specifically that question, I am often asked, why did you decide to kind of mix ancient Greek myth with the 18th century? Uh, Initially, the idea for Pandora was very much a kind of light bulb moment. I'd recently had my last novel, which I'd worked about 10 years on, rejected by an agent, um, one of many rejections. And I was actually driving back home from one of the colleges that I'd um, been teaching in, Braverestwith University. And the idea of Dora and Hermes the magpie just popped into my head and alongside it the the, the Pandora box myth now I think I, I think it's the sort of myth that we're all aware of in some sort of, of way um you know the first human woman created by Zeus she was given a box and told not to open it but she opened it anyway and unleashed all the evils of the world leaving hope trapped inside um so the concept of it was known to me and, and must obviously be known to everybody, but I started researching it and thinking, how on earth can I actually place a Greek myth into Georgian London? But it is actually surprisingly easy. So uh, a 
essentially, the Georgians really were fascinated by the ancient world. Um, if we kind of backtrack ever so slightly, the events of Pandora play out over the first few months of 1799. The formal regency era was from the 1811 to 1820, but the period from 1795 to 1837, which includes the latter part of George III's reign, is also regarded as the regency era. So Pandora is set on the cusp of it, but women's fashions were already changing from full skirts to more sedate and graceful designs, and they were known as the Empire Line. There were high-waisted gowns, dresses with scabbard under the breast and the neck. And these dresses were remarkably similar to clothing worn in ancient Greece. So it was a style that was very much prevalent in their dress, their fashions. Um, it was also prevalent in the architecture as well. So a lot of the architecture that you would see, let's say, in London and Bath, much of it, when it was built in the 18th century, was inspired by ancient Greece in one form or another. So they all um, evolved, essentially, from the Paladin Revival. Um, many of these buildings had, flanking the doorways, beautiful temple columns. So those obviously kind of drew back to the ancient Greeks and Romans and their temples there. And the whole kind of movement was essentially dubbed neoclassicism, and it was heavily influenced by Sir William Hamilton's excavations from Pompeii, and we'll get back to that, and obviously the aristocratic tradition of the Grand Tour. So basically, all of this kind of imagery was very much ingrained in the Georgian psyche. And with William Hamilton, he collected a vast collection of Greek vases, and this is where the link starts coming in. When I started researching Pandora's box specifically, it was extremely interesting to find out that box was actually a mistranslation, and that was courtesy of the 16th century philosopher Erasmus, when he translated Hesiod's tale of Pandora into Latin. The word pithos, which means a large storage jar of ours, was translated into Latin word pixis, so forgive the mistranslation um, there if I've not said it right, but that essentially means box. So I was then immediately able to see, right, a box was actually a vase. William Hamilton collected Greek vases. How can I actually get these then to London? And it just so happens that with Napoleon threatening to invade Naples, which was where William Hamilton was stationed, he decided for safety to ship all his collection back to England. And that's the irony of it. He was trying to keep them safe. But the ship that he shipped them on, the HMS Colossus, actually sank on the outskirts of, uh, of England, just off the Isles of Scilly. And essentially, there we are. And that is how the novel of Pandora opens, where we are aware of a shipwreck and a package kind of being brought up to the surface. So I'm sorry for that very long, convoluted answer, but it's all very kind of mixed in together. And it was just essentially an idea that popped into my head that I decided to pursue and luckily everything just nicely slotted into place really in terms of research and facts. Uh, no, it's a lovely answer. Uh, after all, I want to hear uh, what inspired you and, and uh, you're telling me. And it's wonderful, isn't it, when those historical accidents just appear uh, in the right place at the right time. <laughs> 
So your heroine, Pandora Blake, uh, known as Dora, has many secrets in her past, which we won't reveal because most of the novel is uh, about what they are and even that they exist. Um, but tell us who she is at the very beginning of the novel in terms of her position in life and her personality and dreams for the future. Of course. So when the novel opens, Dora is essentially a girl that's trapped, I suppose, in poverty, uh, in squalor, in the shop of her uncle, which actually used to belong to her parents. Um, they were very kind of celebrated archaeologists that they died tragically in a dig gone very, very wrong many years before. And Hezekiah, her uncle, has taken the shop over, but he's essentially kind of ruined the reputation that was there. And instead of genuine antiquities, he, he now sells forgeries. And Dora is very frustrated with this life. As a woman in 18th century London, there, there isn't a massive amount of um, freedom available for those who don't have money and who are very much under the thumb of uh, their guardians, in which case Dora is. So her way of trying to find a way out is that she has a fascination with, with jewellery, and she's a, an artist. It's a skill that she's inherited from her mother. And the novel opens with her creating a piece of jewellery from little bits and pieces that she's collected over the years, and which her magpie pet Hermes goes out and brings back for her. Uh, she basically aspires to be a celebrated jewellery artist. She wants to be able to gain her freedom by selling her jewellery designs to the upper echelon of society. And she's hoping basically to make a name for herself so she can be free, so she has money to escape the clutches of her uncle, who she just doesn't get on with at all. He treats her quite cruelly. Um, no abuse or anything like that, but he's just very unaffected. He, he clearly doesn't want her there and he's just using her as a means to an end so she essentially wants to be free and it is very much a story about freedom I think uh, it's a story that like Pandora's box I suppose has hope as a, as a theme going all the way through it so Dora herself is driven very much by her hope of a better life you mentioned Hermes. You mentioned that he just came to you as an image with Dora. But um, why a magpie? What makes a magpie a particularly um, appropriate pet for Dora? <laughs> I think I myself have been always quite superstitious as a child. So whenever I've seen a magpie, I've kind of done the salute and repeated the little rhyme. Um, one for sorry, two for joy, etc. Uh, so I think there was a subconscious decision there. But at the same time, as Dora is a jewellery maker, magpies are attracted to shiny things. So in terms of a practicality sense, it made sense for Dora's pet to be attracted to these little trinkets that she could use in her creations. But he's also a key character in the sense that, and I'm trying not to do spoilers here, but he is a mechanism, I suppose, in order to take the story from one point all the way to the end. He's part of the mystery. He is the catalyst for, for other things later on. Um, but in terms of trying to link things to Greek mythology, which th this novel is not a reimagining, it's a loose reinterpretation of the Greek myth, Pandora's box. The myth is very heavily there in place. But there are elements of Greek myth all the way through. And Hermes, 
the, the choice of name was very, very important. Hermes in Greek mythology was the god of thieves and he was a messenger. And so symbolically, that was very, very important. So, yeah, it's just kind of, they came as a nice sort of pair in terms of magpie for shiny jewellery and Hermes for name as being a messenger and a, a magpie can fly and they can go from one place to the other. It was it was just kind of a very organic process to, to create Hermes the way that I did. Uh, we've talked a little bit about Hezekiah. Um, he also has a live-in housekeeper, and there are air quotes there. Um, yes. who, <laughs> who is Lottie? <laughs> and how does her presence in the house affect Dora? So when Lottie first moved in, when Dora was still quite young, having recently lost her parents, she saw Lottie to begin with as a potential mother figure and felt... She didn't feel any sort of resentment, I think, initially, because she, I think she hoped that she would get some sort of normality back in her life with a potential father, father figure, Hezekiah, and a potential mother figure with Lottie. But unfortunately, Lottie was not very nice to Dora either. And this has something to do with her relationship with Hezekiah and her knowledge of Hezekiah's past, which, again, I must kind of try not to to kind of, uh, you know, lead anybody here. But because Lottie is so dismissive and often quite mean to her, Dora has begun to resent her. She is supposedly the housekeeper with another sort of focus in terms of Hezekiah's own uh, own, own background, so to speak. But... Uh, she doesn't really do her job properly, certainly not in the antiquity shop and certainly not in Dora's um, lodgings, which happen to be in the attic upstairs. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that uh, Lottie has the room that Dora used to have as a child. So that there is resentment there and there's this feeling of, feel, of being um, sidelined and pushed aside in favour of somebody who Dora does see as being below her in rank because Dora is the daughter of, of this house and resents that her own flesh and blood Hezekiah favours Lottie over her. So it's it's a complicated relationship, but it is one that evolves between them as, as the novel goes on. It does evolve, yes, and in a, um, a very interesting direction. Um, now, here in this question, we're going to have to be especially careful not to give away spoilers, but could you tell us just a brief sketch? Could you give us just a brief sketch of Dora's parents? They're interesting characters. Now, Dora, as many people do as children, they only, she only remembers them in a, certain, in a certain light. So Helen is the mother. Now, she um, is Greek. Dora has learnt the language from Helen. She has inherited quite a few of her talents. I mentioned drawing earlier was one of them. She remembers uh, the songs that her mother used to sing and her mother's fascination with the Pandora myth directly. So there's, always, there's also prior knowledge there for Dora. Elijah is Hezekiah's brother. And Elijah is English, and he's the one that had the shop to begin with. And their parents met when you know, they were very young. 
via Hezekiah. And it's a kind of, it's a family intrigue. Let, let, let's put it that way. There are, there are reasons for Hezekiah's actions. The story begins with a locked door. I mean, not the actual story begins with the sinking of the Colossus, but the Dora's story begins with a locked door. Um, what makes Dora so determined to find out what lies down in the cellar, whatever the cost to herself? Simply because her uncle's being extremely suspicious about the way he's handling the shipment. So Dora already knows that the items that Hezekiah sells in this antiquity shop are forgeries. She knows this. It's part of where her resentment comes from, that Hezekiah has been so blasé about the gift, essentially, that Dora's parents gave him, which was the inheritance of the shop. And Dora had hoped he would treat it in the way that it deserved to be. But he hasn't. So he, he's essentially shamed the Blake name by letting the shop go to rack and room, by selling such dodgy um, items. And when this one particular shipment turns up at the door, Hezekiah is so determined that Dora doesn't go anywhere near it, so determined to ensure that it is locked down in the basement and that nobody else goes down there except himself and even Lottie to a point that she is immediately suspicious of this she knows what he's up to in in many sense but he's never kind of necessarily hidden anything from her before not that she knows of so this kind of extra seedy kind of behavior from him is incredibly intriguing to Dora and, and that's why she wants to get to the bottom of it it's around this point, and we're still pretty early in the book, uh, when we meet Edward Lawrence. Uh, tell us about him, uh, his social standing and background, but also his personality and aspirations, again, at the beginning of the story. Yeah, well, Edward never actually was going to be in the novel at all, but I kind of got to chapter five of the first draft and realized that I couldn't take this story through on its own with just Dora uh, as the point of view. The reason for that is, again, because of female agency in the period. Females were strong, they were talented, but they were very much penned in by the social norms of the era. And again, men tend to have a very leading relationship with women in the sense that their freedom was taken away in terms of marriage or guardianship that what belonged to a woman was actually a man's and she had no uh, kind of say in herself. So to take the story through to its conclusion, Dora couldn't just stay in the shop. She needed some sort of background help and that was when I conceived of Edward Lawrence. But the thing what I always wanted to do with this story is make sure that the myth of Pandora, because many Greek myths are quite misogynistic, uh, and women are cast often as the victim or a villain. I wanted to make sure that Dora had that agency all the way through. But it, so in doing that, I wanted Edward not to be, I think he is a strong character, definitely, but he's not the hero. Dora is very much the hero of her own story. So I needed to ensure that Edward had his own weaknesses, that he was a softer character and by, my, by no means weak weak and soft are complete, two completely different um, you know different terms Edward needed to have his own ambition he needed to think have his own 
own dark past that he was trying to rise above of. And that's the similarity between Dora and Edward and the reason why they're so sympathetic towards each other, I think, because they are both from um, a background that doesn't typically give them that freedom and sense of social standing that they both want and they both have to fight for it. So Edward, he is the son of a um, of a stableman. He is adventurous and inquisitive in his own right and has ambitions of being a scholar uh, in, in his own right. Uh, he wants to belong to the Society of Antiquaries and he wants to essentially kind of be an, an antiquarian and, and make that his living. Currently, he's working as a bookbinder in a shop, but he's very unhappy, just very frustrated with his life. But he is, I think, a very kind man. He's a gentleman, and he sees in Dora a kindred spirit, and he is keen to help her, as well as himself, I suppose. But it's a sweet relationship, I think. But I must always point out that Edward, while helping Dora in her journey doesn't take over he's very happy for her to be the one that takes the lead and I don't think that makes him a pusher I just think that makes him a very sympathetic character in terms of he himself as a reader how we perceive him but uh, how Dora perceives him as well if that makes sense and how does he become involved in her quest to find out what her uncle has in in the cellar well as I said earlier I knew I couldn't take the story through completely on Dora's um, POV so when she's down in this basement and she discovers what's there and I don't think it's anything to uh, any spoiler to say that it is a mysterious Greek vase she's looking for inspiration for her jewellery designs and she finds that in the vase that she discovers in the basement but despite her parentage Hezekiah has prevented her from learning about antiquaries herself in any form of detail And she's intrigued that such an ancient-looking, beautifully preserved vase is down there, and so she needs to find a way to discover the background of it. Now, earlier on in in the story, Edward himself had actually come into the antique shop and asked for her help. Um, I don't want to give spoilers as to how that came about, but essentially she goes back to him and she says, look, can you you help me out here? And, And that's how they team up. And that's how the story properly takes off with them working together and secrets being revealed and all that kind of thing. So one of the interesting parts of the story to me is that roughly in modern terms, we could say that Dora and Edward are middle class. Um, but the story doesn't stop with them. So we, uh, you've already mentioned Lord Hamilton, um, or Sir William Hamilton, rather. It's always confusing because his wife is a lady, but he's not a lord. <laughs> But um, but also, uh, Edward has a friend, Cornelius Ashmole, um, who is definitely sort of upper class. And then there are various lower class um, people. So can you talk a bit about the, the surrounding cast and what the interest for you as an author in comparing those three different levels of society in this specific time period? Well, first of all, I have to say that Cornelius is my favorite character. Uh, I completely adore him and that didn't that's interesting considering I based him off a person that I don't particularly like and who doesn't particularly like me um I think the dynamic there was very interesting I could pull on that experience myself in terms of the way that Cornelius treats 
um, Dora. But Cornelius Ashmore, he is a childhood friend of Edward, um, and it was his father, Cornelius's father, that is, that had hired Edward's father as a stablewoman. So that's where that connection comes through. So they have a childhood connection. Um, and Cornelius, I think, sees Edward very much as his somebody to look after. He feels he's his caretaker. Um, the reason why Edward has the bookbinding job is, is because of Cornelius. But I think he, many in many ways, he can be very, very selfish. He dislikes Dora because, I suppose, in a way, he feels threatened by her. And I think it's a typical personality of somebody who has money and is, who is used to having their own way and is finds it very difficult to see beneath the social sphere that they are born into so that is one kind of dynamic there that I think was very very important it's you know it's social class and that's that's a kind of theme that's very strong in the novel so we have on the higher on the higher tier we have Cornelius Ashmole um, William Hamilton and his wife but there's also Lady Latimer as well who plays a key role in the novel and we are swept into the higher echelon of, of London society by a soiree that she ends up hosting about halfway through the novel um, and that kind of sweeps Edward and, and Dora into a world that neither of them are familiar with so that's very very interesting to see but it shows that money can buy everything money is used as a way of kind of building oneself up and, and keeping themselves there. That's something that Cornelius and Lady Latimer do. But on the flip side, as you rightly say, there are other characters a little bit lower down where Edward himself is aware of the differences in social standing. So there are two types here. So there are the colleagues that Edward has in the book bindery and he realises how they must have struggled and how especially the... Um, the overseer um so he is very very important in the sense that he's actually a man of color and that his role in society is potentially um higher than it would have been otherwise again i'm trying not to kind of lead anybody here you have to read it to understand what i mean there but there's that element and then there's also the the night soil men so quite a few times we see in the novel this one particular character named Jonas Tibb and he is the boss of a group of men who are called Night Soil Men. We have to remember that London at, in the 18th century it was a very smelly very very dirty place there was no sewage system in place at all and so human waste had to be disposed of in some form or another and what would happen is that there'd be people who would go out at night and collect the human waste, wheel it down to a dock. Uh, in the novel, it's Puddle Dock, and that was a real place, specifically a lay stall, um, and that can be seen in the historical records. And the waste is disposed of, taken down river. It's a very horrible job. It, it can't have been nice at all. And it's a, it's a world completely different from Lady Latimer and, and Cornelius Ashmole a place that neither one of those characters would ever see, whereas Edward, being very much stuck in the middle, does experience that. And he's very, very aware, I think, of the role of society and how lucky, in the end, he actually is. 
um, I think it's very important as a writer to consider every single layer of society. Otherwise, the, the novel and all stories, I don't think, will stand true if we completely ignore them. I agree. I have to admit that Lady Latimer is actually my favourite character other than Dora <laughs> and Edward. I mean, it's comedy value because there are elements of darkness in the novel, likeness too, but I think, yeah, Lady Latimer is, is, is my comic character. Yeah, she really is. Um, another group uh, in the lower classes are the Coombe brothers who play a fairly important role. Um, could you tell us just a little bit about them? Yes. There are three brothers, and they are, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, but they are the ones that collect the vase at the very, very beginning in the prologue. But they are very superstitious characters. They believe, due to ill health since collecting the vase, that it is cursed, and they fall ill one by one, essentially. And Matthew Coombe, who is the elder of the three brothers, and he has a very um, troubling relationship with Hezekiah, and they are appealing characters in a sense because even though they have been clearly capable of, of bad deeds, they are sympathetic in the sense of their mistreatment by Hezekiah, the assumption there. And yeah, it, it's hard not to give any spoilers there, but they. There's always a lackey. There is always somebody for a for somebody to do the dirty work for them. And in, in this case, that is what the Coombe brothers are to Hezekiah. Before we close, have I left out anything that you would like listeners to hear about? Other characters, plot points, settings that are particular favourites of yours? Well, I've already said that Cornelius is my favourite character and I, and I do really enjoy the dynamic between Cornelius and Dora. So I love the relationship that they start to develop together and and that's something to kind of really read between the lines and look at but I think in general terms of themes and plot points one focus which is unavoidable is how essentially people treated um the idea of of thievery and antiquary so I've already said about William Hamilton he had this intent you know kind of amazing vase collection but he got those simply because he got involved in these digs himself you know he he paid to to actually have these excavations done and he took the loot for himself he did ship it off to the British Museum uh, some of the pieces and he felt that he was giving back to the world by sharing everything with the world and yet he argues in his in, in his defense that Napoleon who did the same thing was basically keeping everything for himself and it's very much a case of it being interesting in the sense that how one person believes what they're doing is right even though they're doing exactly the same as somebody who is essentially doing something wrong I, I think it's a reflection of of the modern world in that pillaging of of countries and their treasures does still kind of happen today and I think my novel is very much a, a novel about morality as well as as everything else and I, I think in terms of an historian, it's something that, that needs to be looked at a little bit more. And I'd love it, basically, if whoever 
reads the novel can kind of consider all of these extra nuances that I've tried to deliver. Uh, yeah, there's quite a bit, I suppose, isn't there? But um, I hope whoever reads it will enjoy it. And also just to, you know, remind themselves that this isn't a Greek retelling. I'm not a classicist. So if you're expecting it to be a full um, first-person account of Pandora, the first human woman created by Zeus and the other gods, that that's not what it, what it is. It is a loose reinterpretation. But I hope I have given the Pandora of myth some agency through Dora Blake and that my readers enjoy it. So I think you may already have answered this question, but uh, just in case, I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, what would you like people to take away from Pandora? A novel that is full of heart, uh, that also kind of shows history in the Georgian period as being a period of time that uh, that was exciting, that was fascinating. I mean, it's an awfully long period of time, the, the Georgian era. It's 1714 through to the 1830s. And in so many ways, I think the era is overlooked very much by the Tudors or the medieval period or even the Victorian period. It's worth researching. So I hope that my readers will enjoy the mystery and the heart of the novel and the themes that are playing out in terms of the the sins and, you know, the, the hope that is kind of underlying the novel all the way through but also be intrigued by the era and read and read up on it a little bit more. And what about you? Are you are you already working on something new? I am. So I think as a writer, I'm always going to be writing in the Georgian era. That is a given. Uh, this idea, it's still evolving. It's an idea that in the basics I have had since 2006, actually. But I am still trying to get my head around how to how to make it what I, I picture in my head. But essentially what it is, it's uh, set in the 1780s in rural Wales, which is the area that I'm living now. And it will have elements of uh, Welsh myth. It will draw on the occult and also explore the hellfire clubs of the era. So while Pandora is a light Gothic novel, I would say that this next novel is probably going to be a much darker Gothic fair. Okay, well, I look forward to seeing it. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Susan Stokes Chapman about Pandora. Find out more about her at susanstokeschapman.com. That's all one word. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.